Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 4. Starry-Eyed In 1985, the world appeared fuzzy to me. Nothing had clean, clear lines. No matter how hard my eyes tried, they simply could not firmly grasp hold of objects or words or faces around me. There was a beautiful, glittering, shimmering film of light and tiny stars between me and the rest of the world. Wherever I looked, I could see flickering points of moving light. If I kept my focus on one thing, And if that thing was a car coming towards me, then that car, that thing, would disappear entirely. In its place would emerge a bright, white, pulsating, glowing ball of energy. It made me think of the Milky Way, and it felt as if I had a slice of our immense, limitless galaxy in my eyes, sparkling and twinkling away day and night. As I've said, the name of my new sight condition was Stargard's disease, or Stargazer. I loved the idea of being a stargazer. I wondered if perhaps this new name could be more an incantation and an invitation than a limiting diagnosis for me. Into this new starry world, an angel emerged. Thank goodness. Dr. Leslie Bolton was a bespeckled, smart, kind, pragmatic, and incredibly positive eye specialist, originally from England. As soon as we sat down together in her sun-filled hospital consulting room, In May 1985, she started to tell me all the ways she could support me. She told me about all the things I would still be able to do, and all the technology that was now becoming available to support blind people. Her room was full of the most amazing gadgets and devices, a kind of museum and showroom of treasured and rare objects that all fulfilled a purpose. All had a role to play in enabling the blind to access the visual world in some way. Her positivity was contagious and so refreshing. She was only focused on what was possible. Even today, 35 years later, she still radiates this powerful sense of limitless human potential. I suspect the possibility approach I started to focus on many years later in my work was informed by Leslie and her perspective on life and blindness. All those years ago, she was planting the seeds of what would become the global center of possibility an incubator for accessibility innovation and design, in 2020. Leslie was equipping me for the world I was about to re-enter. My personal Mr. Miyagi, if you like. And I think the possibility mindset she modelled for me was her real gift as she tried to equip me for what was to come. Although I did not have the language back then, I now know she was walking with me as I re-emerged into the world as a blind teenager. I returned to school with my new blind person paraphernalia and my new label. Day after day, I tried out my new equipment in class. 
As I tested out the collection of both low- and high-tech gadgets in the real world, I soon realised it was going to be a case of trial and error. It was not going to be easy. Leslie had loaned me a range of handheld magnifiers. One of these sat in a little plastic tripod, a miniature lookout post that I could slide over the pages in my books. Another had a wooden handle that I could hold to inspect each word, like a biologist examining a new bug in a petri dish. Another, my favourite, resembled a beautiful solid glass paperweight that slid elegantly across the page, a smooth glass bubble of expanding convex letters. I also had in my care a remarkable tiny telescope. Leslie encouraged me to hold it up to my good eye in class when I could not see the blackboard, which by now was all the time. But I felt so terribly self-conscious and awkward. I felt everyone in my class was looking at me in my bionic eye. I felt unable to use it with confidence and instead tried to use it when I thought no one was looking, sneaking clumsy glances at the blackboard. But I soon realised that much of this equipment relied on there being some usable sight left in the centre of my eyes. Unfortunately, this was the area of my eye most impacted by stargards. One thing I felt very grateful for was that my colour vision seemed virtually unaffected by this condition. Leslie told me that many people with stargards can lose much, if not all, of their colour vision. This was not my experience. I rejoiced in the vibrant colours all around me every day of my life. Thanks to my wonderfully creative mother and her eye for both interior and garden design, my eyes were trained to recognise colour in its many tones, shades, subtleties and nuances. I knew what was chartreuse, amethyst, puce, turquoise and of course chocolate. It seemed that being a stargazer was only part of my personal sighted reality. I was told that I did in fact have a sweet, or was that a gaggle, or maybe a clutch, of sight issues. In addition to stargards, I was also short-sighted and had also inherited my father's Cornish night blindness. So ironically, stargazing was probably not something I was going to be doing, certainly not in the literal sense. I was not the only one intrigued by my new tools. My brothers thought my newly acquired white canes were fantastic and immediately started to play fight with them. They pretended they were Star Wars Jedi, and these were their laser swords. Each cane folded up into 30-centimeter segments. When you wanted to use the cane, you would flick it out, and in an instant, the segments would form a single long white cane. Many battles took place between the forces of good and evil in the Baragwanath backyard thanks to the Blind Foundation. I was now in my fifth form at Palmerston North Girls High School. It was my school certificate year, which felt like a big deal. Getting good marks felt pivotal to my future education and life. If only I had known how little these exams really mattered in the long run. But at the time, they were everything to me and my friends. Megan, a childhood friend, and I buddied up and studied together when we could. Megan was extremely clever and very organized with her exam prep. She and I worked out a rhythm for studying together where she would read out loud certain things we needed to cover off so I could study on a more equal footing. I loved that she chose to study with me and did not see me as a burden, something I dreaded greatly. Being teenagers, it was not all about our schoolwork. 
Our study was interspersed with going to the fantastic outdoor Lido swimming pool and listening to The Smiths, my favourite album at the time. A treasured gift from my oldest brother, Mike. One day in our school holidays, Megan and I also decided to ride our 10-speed bikes from Palmerston North to Paikakariki, a small town just north of Wellington, about 100 kilometres from home. As I think about this now, I cannot quite believe our parents let us do this. But the 1980s were a very different time. We basically cycled along the side of the highway, two young teenage girls on their own, one legally blind, dodging large trucks, motorbikes and cars. The journey took the best part of an entire day before we reached the safety of Megan's grandmother's home. I think the reason mum let me go on this adventure was because she wanted to ensure I did not feel I was being smothered or overprotected, even though I was now officially blind. She wanted me to still be able to live a full and exciting life. However, I very quickly realised that not everyone was going to support me during this time in my life. One friend was particularly unkind. She pretended to care and to let me look at her books in class when I could not see the blackboard or overhead projector. It turned out she was often writing down gobbledygook instead of what was on the board to try and trick me. She thought this was hilarious. Teenage girls can be very, very unkind. One day we had a new class called Computer Skills. This was the first time I had seen a computer other than the Commodore 64 we had at home for games. No surprises that Scott spent many hours playing on this. These very early Apple Macs had a screen the size of an A5 piece of paper. They were a nondescript rectangle box. The letters were like tiny ants on the screen and were totally illegible to me. I remember just sitting at the computer desk and staring at this tiny screen with its illegible font and realising with dread there was absolutely no way I could take part in this class or use this new fangled piece of equipment. Then Leslie, my eye specialist, turned up one day with a new piece of technology. She hoped I might be able to use it to see my books more easily. By now I could barely read anything in my school textbooks. This digital reading device was a slim-lined and sleek pewter-coloured box with a long cord and a strange handheld camera on the end. I tried to use it. As I held the camera over my books, a long, thin, single line of text appeared on the digital screen. It looked a lot like the orange-red light that alternated back and forth on the Daleks in Doctor Who. But it was painfully slow trying to read this way, and I felt I couldn't continue with it. Every time we tried something out and it did not work, it was gutting. I was starting to realise that while there were many implements that sought to aid the blind at this time, in the mid-80s, many were crude, clumsy, and simply did not work for me. Leslie and I did not give up. The strange thing is no one seemed to think it was important that I learn Braille. I'm not sure why this was. It might have been because computer technology was on the rise, or maybe because I could see some things. Or maybe the Blind Foundation did not have the resources. Certainly, like most disability charities in New Zealand, they were always strapped for cash. They were not well-resourced by the government, even though they were, and still are, the only support option for blind people. Or was the real reason I did not learn Braille, because as a family we still had not quite accepted I was now blind. 
At school, teachers and sports coaches were extremely varied in their response to my new diagnosis and label. On the one hand, some chose to step up and be there for me, while others turned their backs and seemed to make no effort whatsoever. Sometimes people stepping up and endeavouring to do the right thing for me was not always successful, the road to hell being paved with good intentions and all that. I'd been advised that as a blind student, I was allowed to have extra time for reading and writing in my school cert exams at the end of the year. In a well-intended but clumsy effort to meet my needs, someone enlarged all my exam papers on the photocopier, from A4 to A3 size. I vividly remember my English exam. I recall sitting in the kitchen area of the school hall. The rest of the students were in the main hall. A sliding window divided us. I sat down to not one, but two desks. My exam papers were so large that I needed the extra desk just to fit all the papers onto them. The real surprise came, however, when I realised that not only had the exam questions been enlarged for me, but so too had the answer papers. I wrote and wrote and wrote in an effort to fill up the enormous A3 exam papers. I was given extra time to allow for my slow reading, but as I tried to use one of Leslie's magnifying glasses, the deputy principal announced over the speaker system in front of everyone that as Minnie Baragwanath had extra time, could you please leave the hall quietly? I was mortified. This was an excruciating moment of quiet humiliation a feeling I would become remarkably familiar with throughout my life. The last thing I wanted was to draw attention to myself and my disability. The last thing I wanted was to feel different and not fit in. At the age of 15, I did not want to face the fact I was now an outlier. During my fifth form year, I decided to take up long-distance running. I loved sport and being physical. The great thing about running, I discovered, was that it did not require me to see a ball or coordinate with other people. I think this was when I started to look for things I could do in my life that did not require others to step up to meet me and my failing eyesight. This is when I began to unconsciously seek out pathways where I could go it alone and avoid the disappointment of being let down. Or when I could not find those rare people who wanted to be or knew how to walk alongside me. Dad had been an excellent long-distance runner in his youth. I now took to it wholeheartedly. When the same friend, who was deliberately misleading me in class, said she did not think I could be a very good runner, I felt a steely resolve take hold of me, deep, deep inside. That resolve lives with me to this day. It has served me incredibly well throughout my life, manifesting at crucial times as resilience perseverance and good old-fashioned stubbornness and bloody-mindedness. I ended up representing the school at the Athletics Nationals for the next three years and many years later running the New York Marathon. Twice. More on that later. Around this same time, I was selected to represent my school on the amazing Spirit of Adventure sailing ship. However, my delight at being selected was very short-lived. Soon after I'd been told of my selection, I was called into the deputy principal's office. She looked genuinely upset when she advised me the Spirit of Adventure organisers would not let me go on the trip because I was blind and disabled. I was devastated. How could people who did not know me, who had never met me, 
know what I was or was not capable of based on some label, some diagnosis. This was a pivotal moment for me. I now understood with brutal clarity that certain other people, random people, would reduce, limit, and try to stop me being me in the world. I now realized that other people's self-limiting beliefs and ideas about blindness and disability were going to be the real barrier to accessing my life and the world I wanted so much to be a part of. Sadly, not everyone had Leslie's possibility mindset. When I started high school, I was learning the flute and double bass. I was studying speech and drama. I learned ballet. I played hockey, basketball, badminton, cricket and tennis. And I skied. Four years later, by the time I left high school, I no longer did any of these. Perhaps this was why, 35 years later, when our world was impacted by COVID and large parts of our daily lives were amputated, a part of me was quite unfazed. This experience of having things that mattered deeply to me taken away was nothing new. In fact, for many friends with disability, they hardly noticed a difference during COVID. Not going on holiday, not going for spontaneous outings, not being able to hang out with friends was all just far too familiar. It was, it is, the experience for many disabled New Zealanders, both then and now. In fact, in some way, it was a relief during COVID to feel at last as though we were all in the same boat for once. It is important to note, however, that as fate would have it, I did end up sailing on the spirit of adventure on a disability trip a few years later. I absolutely loved it. As many of us had a disability of some kind, each of us who was considered disabled was buddied up with an able-bodied someone we did not know and invited to experience the week-long trip together. Then my someone happened to fall down the precipitous stairwell on the ship on the very first day. She sprained her ankle badly and ended up bedridden for the rest of the trip. I was liberated. I became the captain of the boat. I climbed the 20 metre high masts. I traversed out along the three metre long yard arms. I rejoiced in being out at sea. And for the first time in my life, I met and began to connect with other young blind people on that same trip. Blindness, I realised, would open different doors for me. And no, I did not push my someone down the stairs. They simply did not look where they were going at the time. My time at high school finished abruptly. My seventh form year lasted all of two weeks. Both my best friends had left the year before. One had moved to a new town. The other had gone straight to Massey University from school. After attending our seventh form camp at the start of the new school year, I was aware of the huge gap I now felt without my friends being there. And I was now also acutely unsure as to how I was going to study. I recall sitting in a history class one day. The teacher was nowhere to be found, and on the blackboard were screeds and screeds of totally illegible white chalk writing. I guess this might have been what they call self-directed learning. Or perhaps it was a teacher shirking all responsibility for her students, especially the one blind girl in that school. In the spirit of self-direction, I walked out of the school and never came back. Many years later, in the late 1990s, I was asked to be the guest speaker, along with the mayor and local komatoa, at the beautiful Regency Theatre, 
to a group of girls graduating from my old high school. This invitation came from a very progressive principal at the school, and I felt honoured and humbled to have been asked to speak. In my speech, I said that this moment when I walked out of school may well have been the first time I really began carving out an alternative path for myself as a young blind woman. This pivotal decision was like the sliding doors moment in the movie of the same name. It could so easily have been the point at which I fell out of the system and into a life of low education, unemployment and benefit dependency. Blind women were, and still are, one of the most economically deprived and underemployed group in our world today, a statistic that is rarely talked about or acknowledged. There were to be many, many more such moments in my life as I learned to navigate the disabling world around me and locate a path that worked for me. As my best friend at the time had left school to go to Massey that year, Mum and I wondered if I could do the same. Mum was also anxious that I get as much education as possible before my sight deteriorated any further. I was not a top student. How could I be with such poor access to formal education? But luckily enough, my marks were good enough. At 16 years old, I was about to begin my Bachelor of English Literature at Massey University in Palmerston North. I was so excited and so relieved to be leaving school behind me. On my first day at Massey, I cycled to the campus in the new Zambezi outfit I had bought on sale in Auckland that summer when visiting my grandparents. I had never spent so much on clothes before and I simply adored the quirky, unusual style and the amazing tribal fabric. Zambezi was a New Zealand clothing company redefining fashion in Aotearoa at the time. No one else in Palmerston North had this outfit. My blonde hair was classic French, or was it simply a 1980s bob? And I had started to use eyeliner and lipstick. The charming head of English said to me, how is it possible you cannot see when you have such beautiful green eyes, Minnie? Ooh, awkward. I giggled nervously. I was growing up. I was no longer a child and would soon have some very different challenges to face in my life as a young blind woman. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.